Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse number 27, and uh, you might imagine some uh, thought has gone into uh, particularly this service and uh, the message. It'll be the first message to preach as your pastor, and uh, I know there's a little bit of a transition time, but uh, also here as a pastor, and so uh, some thought in that, and I wanted the first message, the first thought to be this verse, Philippians 1, 27, and primarily the thought that we're striving together for the faith of the gospel, and that's what uh, our goal is that's what our duty is is to uh, fulfill the great commission that God has given us to take the gospel to every single person in all the world and uh, certainly through the process of the last uh, few months you've heard some of that and my heart on some of that but uh, really this morning I've titled the message building a great church uh, primarily because the title I wanted to give it was too long which is the church we want to continue to build and uh, I believe a day like today really has two elements to it. Uh, One, we can't help but look forward to the future and say, Lord, we're excited about some things. We're excited about what you might do. And uh, we're thrilled. And uh, certainly our family is excited about how the Lord might work and uh, what the Lord might be about to do. And uh, I kind of typically think in that manner anyway. And uh, when I've been here for 20 years, I hope I'm still excited about what the Lord is about to do. And uh, so there's an element of looking forward And then on a day like today, there's also an element of being grateful for the past. And uh, being able to look and say, praise the Lord, that there is a group of people that can be excited about the future because of those who have been faithful in the past. And uh, certainly Pastor Francine has been the leader in that and uh, the one who has uh, helped as a church to be at this place and be at a place where there's a foundation uh, from which we can launch into the future. And uh, we never get to the place where we're done. Amen. It's exciting. We get to just keep building and keep growing and keep becoming more and more like Jesus, as we just heard in the song. And uh, so when, uh, whenever it is, the message could be really the same message. We just want to continue building the kind of a church that God would have us to build. And we want to make sure we know biblically, what does that look like? And so really building a great church is simply building a biblical church. A church that is according to the word of God. And here in Philippians chapter 1, we find, uh, of course, the book of Philippians, the primary thought being that of joy. And when we have a church that is built right, it's a joyful place. And we see some markers here, and we'll study through the verse. But let's read it one more time, uh, just for the thought, the context that is here. Uh, Notice even in uh, verse number 26 coming into it, he says that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me, by my, by my coming again to you, he's talking about rejoicing. He's talking about the joy. And then verse 27, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. That you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together. For the faith of the gospel. Father, I pray that you would give exactly what we need today. I pray that you'd speak to each of our hearts. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as we, <coughs> pardon me, as we launch forward uh, into the coming days, the coming years. Lord, that you would help us to continue to build a biblical church. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you've given us a mission that is never completed. It's never done. But you always have more for us to do and more that we can grow in, more that we can uh, become more and more like you. Would you help us each day? to strive for that as we strive together for the faith of the gospel. We love you. We thank you. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Brigadier General Theodore Roosevelt was the son of President Teddy Roosevelt. And uh, he was a, uh, the oldest man to hit the beach 
in the D-Day invasion, 1944. Really is an incredible story. He was not only the oldest, he was the highest ranking man to actually uh, physically partake in the assault on the beachhead there in Normandy. He was supposed to be back in England with the other command staff, but he had uh, repeatedly asked and repeatedly had rejected his request to be a part of the invasion. Finally, he put it into a written form and he uh, requested that he might be allowed to join his men as they would go and uh, assault that beachhead and try to get a foothold in the land for the Allied forces. And he made his argument such that he said, you know, the men who are going to be going into this battle, they are primarily untested. Many of them are young and they have not yet been through this type of a combat and I've been through it in the past. And so allow me to go. It will give confidence in the battle plan and it will give confidence to those young men to have someone who knows how to handle the fire. And so finally they allowed him to go. The commander of the Allied forces at that time, of course, was General Eisenhower. And it is said that he wrote Roosevelt's eulogy before the invasion even began. They told him he really had very little chance of survival, but he insisted on going. On the morning of the attack... As requested, he was in one of the leading landing craft that would come uh, on shore. They, of course, were under heavy fire from the very get-go, and the rally point that they were to assemble at was also under extremely heavy fire. Being pinned down, it appeared that they would be wiped out. And so Roosevelt took charge and led a move over a seawall to an area of safety where they could begin to move inland. At the point that they got over the seawall, he realized there were some other troops back on the uh, beachfront that were trapped, that they also would lose their lives if he could not get to them, but they had been cut off. So he returned to the beach, and he began to work his way across that beach and led those men over to the uh, area where they could get over that uh, beach wall, where they could get to some element of safety and begin working inland. And then once he got them there, he again turned back onto the beach and made this trip multiple times, helping men get to a place where they could begin to move in and begin to see victory inland. For these actions, he received the Congressional Medal of Honor. The official citation reads, For gallantry and intrepidity, I practiced saying that right and I still didn't, (laughs) at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty on 6 June 1944 in France, after two verbal requests to accompany the leading assault elements in the Normandy invasion had been denied, Brigadier General Roosevelt's written request for this mission was approved, and he landed with the first wave of the forces assaulting the enemy-held beaches. He repeatedly led groups from the beach over the seawall and established them inland. His valor, courage, and presence in the very front of the attack and his complete unconcern at being under heavy fire inspired the troops to heights of enthusiasm and self-sacrifice. Although the enemy had the beach under constant direct fire, Brigadier General Roosevelt moved from one locality to another, rallying men around him, direct uh, direct. Uh, excuse me, directed and personally led them against the enemy. Under his seasoned, precise, calm, and unfaltering leadership, assault troops uh, reduced beach strong points and rapidly moved inland with minimum casualties. He thus contributed substantially to the successful establishment of the beachhead in France. You know, I read that story and I thought, that's exactly the kind of church we want to be. 
The kind of church that says, Lord, uh, we understand there may be some battles. We understand that sometimes it humanly may be that the odds are stacked against us. And there may be moments of heavy fire or times that we go through a difficulty and a trial. And certainly as a church, we have been through some of those. And there may be some days that it looks like, how are we going to win the battle? And how are we going to move forward? But we want to be a church that says, hey, we're just going to stay on the offensive. We're just going to keep moving and keep trying to win people and keep trying to make a difference. And and no matter what it may be, we're going to just keep pressing forward for the cause of Christ, striving together for the faith of the gospel. You know, it's a great story of Roosevelt, but there's something it does not tell you in the citation. Brigadier General Roosevelt had been wounded in World War I. World War I, he was shot through the knee, and so at this time in World War II, as he uh, came onto the beaches of Normandy, he could not walk without his cane. And so he literally assaulted the beaches of Normandy with a cane in one hand and a pistol in the other. And he did all of that walking back and forth on his cane. You know, sometimes it seems like, and we can look around and say, Lord, uh, our world seems so wicked, and it seems like there's so much against us, and it seems like uh, how much of a difference are we really going to make, and how many are we really going to reach, and how much good are we really going to do, and, and sometimes it seems like maybe we should just kind of hunker down and just try to make sure that we don't get blown away by the enemy fire, and, and just kind of hang on to the rapture, and make sure we don't get out there too far, and do too much where we start getting shot at too severely, and And maybe just kind of hunker down in the foxhole and just make sure that we don't get hurt too bad in the process. But the reality of it is to go on the offensive sometimes means you have to step out by faith where it's not enjoyable and where the fire is intense and say, Lord, we know that it's difficult, but we're excited to see what you might do. And we're excited to see how you might work. And really here, the Bible gives us in these verses some thoughts that help us with that. Uh, After all of the battle was over, after the beaches had been cleared, the commanding uh, generals and people of that nature, the high brass, they came onto the beachfront there and they began to observe the situation. Much to their surprise, they were met by Brigadier General Roosevelt, who informed them of the entire battle and everything that had happened that he had walked through that they had merely designed and shown up after it was over. You know, they gave him a name after that day. They called him, the other soldiers, they called him the toughest man on the longest day. You know, it may be there's some long days, but we want to be faithful, the toughest man or church or the most faithful Christian, how we might say it, in the longest day, the times of grave difficulty. Brigadier General served, uh, Roosevelt served faithfully all the way to the end. Six days later, he died of a heart attack. He was faithful. He was leading. He was laboring. He was working for that which he believed in. A little old country called the United States of America. And freedom throughout this world. And as noble of a cause as that is, how far greater is our cause. Amen. How far greater is our commander. How much greater is it worthy of us giving all that we have and serving until the very last moments that God gives breath, that we might be able to win a world to Christ, that we might be able to make a difference for the cause of Christ because we're striving together for the faith of the gospel. What does it take to build a church that stays on the offensive with joy, with excitement, with a thrill, no matter what the odds are that are stacked against it? I want you to notice with me this morning just three prevailing marks of a great church. Number one, a great church must have a singular focus. 
must have a singular focus. Notice what it says at the beginning of the verse. He says uh, the first word, only. You say, all right, pretty simple word. We understand. He's saying, all right, this is of importance. That word only has inside of it this idea in the original language. It has this idea, this and nothing more. In other words, don't have a a thousand focuses of life. Don't let everything become your focus. Don't let your focus get uh, to where it's just kind of a wide array of things. But understand what are the things that are the most vital, the most important, and make sure that your focus is pinpoint focus on that which is important to God. As a church, as Paul is writing to this church in Philippi, he says to him, only, nothing more. Make sure that you have a singular focus, only. And then he says, here's what you are needing to do. Only let your conversation. That word conversation, we see it often uh, in the Bible. We often say the word conversation means lifestyle. And it does. That's a very general idea of that. But here's really what it means, literally. It means to live as a citizen. In other words, it means to fulfill your civic duties. So in the time of the Bible, when they would use this word, conversation, uh, they would be talking about that you would have a life that is consistent, a life that is uh, fulfilling the civic duties that you'd be responsible for. So Paul is telling us here, only, nothing else, make sure you vote in the next election. No, of course not. Now I think it's a good idea to vote in the next election, but that's not what Paul's saying, amen? He's saying only let your focus be, and the word he uses is to fulfill your civic duties. So what is he talking about? If he's not talking about uh, the, the election, if he's not talking about making sure that we don't litter when we go out in the park, if he's not talking about uh, whatever we might look at as our civic duty, why does he use the word? It's because of this he's not talking about being a citizen here, because here we're just strangers and pilgrims, amen? But we're citizens of a much greater land. We're citizens of a heavenly land, an eternal land. And as citizens, we have some civic responsibilities. We have some duties because we are citizens. I wrote down three. You could go on for quite a while with these. Uh, Number one, we have a civic responsibility because of where we are citizens of that we gather to worship our king. You know, we don't gather for church just because we can't come up with anything else to do. Amen? I hear, I've heard a rumor somewhere, there's a football game sometime today, and uh, some people are even excited about it. Can you imagine? (laughs) I've been a Chiefs fan my whole life, it'll be a thrilling thing, but I think about this often, especially this time of year. Do you realize our world, they only get to have one Super Bowl uh, Sunday all year long. We get to have like 52 of them. Every Sunday is the most important day of the week. Why? Because it's when we gather to worship our King and to remember that He is the one who rose from the dead and He's the one who's triumphant and He's the one who we serve. And we gather to sing praises to His name and we gather to, uh, to not just so that we can hear a man preach a message that I came up with. No, we gather so we can hear the Word of God explained and understood so we can live it out because we want to worship our King. We have a responsibility, a duty as a citizen of heaven to say, hey, I'm going to make sure I don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. No, no, we want to do so much the more as we see the day approaching. So there's a thrill in it. There's a joy in it. Uh, There's a conversation. Our duty is to gather to worship the king. Secondly, to encourage and exhort other people that are citizens, fellow citizens of that eternal land. Oh, what a joy to exhort one another. Amen. 
It's so much more than just encourage. We should do both. Uh, Really, the word exhort, it has the idea of, let's go. I mean, come on. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to come along every now and then. And sometimes we need to exhort one another. Sometimes we need to come along and, and, and we're not coming just to encourage. We're coming to say, hey, I've noticed you've been really, you know, uh, maybe a, a teenager goes to a teenager and says, hey, I noticed that the way you've responded to your parents lately just hasn't been very kind. Wouldn't it be something if a teenager exhorted a teenager that way? I mean, as, as adults, it was, hey, uh, I've noticed lately you just seem kind of discouraged. Anything I can do for you? We're encouraging, but we're also exhorting. Hey, hey how, have your, how have your devotions been lately? Notice you've been kind of down. Have you been reading your Bible? Have you been praying like you should? Have you really been able to walk with the Lord? I know you've got some things going on in life, and, and sometimes we read our Bible, we don't get much out of it. You ever been there? <laughs> hey, how are you doing? How are you doing on a, a real level? It's not just that we walk around and we just howdy with each other, but we're exhorting one another. We're helping each other as we are growing together in Christ. And, and so we're exhorting, but also encouraging fellow citizens. Uh, the third one I put down is that we are to live a life of holiness before the Lord. These are just civic responsibilities, just part of the Christian life. But we're responsible to do them. We could go on all day with those. So Paul tells us, here's your singular focus. Only, nothing more. Have a conversation, uh, a, a lifestyle, a filling or a living out of the Christian life. Uh, let your conversation be as it, here's the next word, becometh the gospel of Christ. Well, that word becoming is an interesting word. It, has, uh, it means literally a manner befitting. So our conversation, our lifestyle, as we live out a life that is consistent with what God tells us to live in his word, a life that is consistent with living for eternity, when we live that out, then what happens is we have a lifestyle that is becoming of the gospel. It's an older word. It would be a a word that sometimes we may not hear that often, but you've probably uh, heard it in this context, that maybe a a young lady is wearing a dress or something like that, and somebody else might come up and say, oh, that dress is very becoming. It it would be that it looks very nice. It uh, really looks nice on you. It it makes you, uh, you make that dress look good, and it's very becoming would be an older way of saying, hey, you look nice today. And that's this word. You know what our lives are supposed to do for the gospel? We're supposed to make the gospel look attractive. We're supposed to make the gospel look good. It's not that that is our witness. Our witness is to be with words, not with lifestyle. The Bible never teaches that our our lifestyle is what witnesses. But if I go out and tell somebody how wonderful my Savior is, and I come up to him and say, God sure is good. He's done a lot of good things in my life. And I just want to tell you how exciting it is to serve my Savior. You know, probably they're not real excited. Amen? <laughs> uh, they, they need to see that my life matches what I'm saying. It's not that I stop saying it. It's not that I don't say it. It's just what I'm saying should have a, a parallel in my life that says, wow, I need that. It makes the gospel look good. It's becoming. And so Paul tells us here, here's our focus. Let your conversation be as it becometh or makes look good the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does your life enhance the message you've been called to preach? Is it consistent with the message? I see here that a church that is a great church that is moving forward, that's on the offensive, that's filled with joy, first of all must have a singular focus. 
I'm going to focus on my life being consistent and my message being faithful so that the gospel is becoming. Then I see not only is there, excuse me, uh, not only is there a singular focus, there is a steadfast faithfulness. Paul says, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Notice the next part, that whether I come and see you or else be absent. Here's what Paul says, whether I'm there or whether I'm not, that it really makes no difference. He's saying, here's Paul, he's the church planter that planted the church at Philippi. Paul is the one who labored with these people. Paul planted this church a little bit different than uh, most of the churches that he planted. And, and he started with just a small little group. And of course, one of the key members of the church was the jailer who was watching over him at one time. And, and so here's this little church, a lady named Lydia and this jailer and a handful of other people that now have reached some other people. And, and they have learned just a little bit from Paul while he was there. But now they're carrying on the work and they're being faithful. And Paul's saying to them and really saying to us, you know, it shouldn't make a difference whether a person is there or whether they're absent. Why is this church faithful? Uh, Why are they doing what they're supposed to? Why is their faithfulness not dependent on Paul's presence? It's because they understand when Paul's not here, Jesus still is. And they are very aware, they live every day in the reality of the presence of their God. God sees us. God sees our faithfulness. And so it's really not about whether or not a person sees us. By the way, when a young person gets a hold of that, now it doesn't really matter if mom and dad are there or not. They'll be faithful to the Lord because they're not living for mom and dad anymore. They've now begun living for God. And we all have to come to that place. It doesn't matter if the pastor is there, if the pastor sees, if the pastor uh, is a part of it, or if my Sunday school teacher is there, or if uh, my deacon is around. It really doesn't matter who's around. I'm not living this way so that I can impress a church. I'm living this way, my life becoming of the gospel, because I recognize Jesus sees. And I want to please him. So there's a steadfast faithfulness. Uh, It is not a a reliant on anything else. And notice what he says, whether I'm there, whether I'm not, whether I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs. That wording here of your affairs has the idea that I can hear what's going around about you. You know, Paul's not talking here about gossiping in a wrong way. But he's very interested in these churches and these people that he's invested his life in. And he's interested in their state of affairs. And so somewhere along the line, there are some people that have come through Philippi. And maybe they come back to the Apostle Paul and they say, Hey, Paul, I I just passed through Philippi a little while ago. And a couple weeks ago, I was there and I was there in a church service with them. And you'll be excited to know they're still serving the Lord. They're still being faithful. And I know you haven't been able to get up there for a while, but, but they're still going and they're still serving. And maybe somebody else comes a little while later through Philippi and they go to church down in Corinth and, and, and uh, they tell maybe Titus while he's there who's about to go back to Paul, hey, Titus, uh, guess what? I just came through Philippi. Let Paul know they're doing good. Hey, let him know they're still going out and telling people about Jesus and they're seeing people saved and the church is growing and, and, and disciples are being multiplied. It's a thrilling work. God is doing a great, a great work there. So Paul's hearing these reports. Hey, I was just there. Hey, Paul, so-and-so was just there and they told me to let you know. Hey, Paul, here's what's happening. And he says, hey, I'm hearing what's going around about you. I'm hearing that you're being faithful and I'm hearing that you're still serving the Lord and I'm hearing that you love God. And and I just want you to know I'm excited about that because there's a steadfast faithfulness. 
You're faithful when I'm around. You're faithful when I'm not around. And I'm hearing the things that are going around about how faithful you are to the Lord. This is a church that had a singular focus. This is a church Paul encourages them to keep this steadfast faithfulness. Keep on serving and keep on going. And certainly we want to have that as a church. But really where we're trying to get to is number three today. And that is a sensible functionality. How is it we're supposed to function on a practical, daily, individual level that then lets us be a church that is functioning on a biblical level? How is it? Because really the church is made up of individuals. So we all have to function right daily in order for the church to function right corporately. And it's reliant on all of us being faithful in these things. So it's a sensible functionality. It only makes sense that we would function how God designs and desires for us to live. So what does he want us to do? How does he want us to live? What does it really look like on a practical level, this Christian life? I see, first of all, Paul's going to deal with our position. He's going to say, look, there's some positions that we need to hold to. There are some positions that that you're being faithful, but let me remind you to stay faithful in those. And look at the wording that he uses. He says that ye stand fast in one spirit. So here's a church that's standing fast. Here's a church that's being faithful. And Paul is commending them. He's commending their position. And he says here, first of all, the wording stand fast, uh, that you may stand fast. This is an idea that we might uh, read in Jude of contending for the faith. They're being faithful. They're holding to the the line. They're holding to the Word of God. Uh, They're not compromising. They're not just going and and bringing in any new thought without trying it. I mean, they are being faithful to the Word of God. And so we see here that they are contending. They are battling. They are doing what is right. And Paul is encouraging them, you need to stand fast. And by the way, as a church, we want to stand fast on the Word of God. Amen? That is our sure foundation. Why can we be a church that's not shaken uh, when the quote-unquote bullets are flying, when we're under heavy attack from the world or uh, maybe even another church or somebody else or when there's an attack that goes on and something that's taking place, we can stand fast because we have a sure foundation. Because we are standing in the right place. So Paul is telling us here, hey, if we're going to be a church that's going to move forward, we cannot do that if we're not standing on the truths of this book. This is what's vital. This is what's important. It's not the personality of the pastor. It's not uh, exactly how we set up the chairs. (laughs) Amen. It's not exactly uh, what table goes where. It's not exactly, uh, you know, the schedule of life that takes place as a church. It's, It's not all those things. It's, do we stand in the right place? Are we on the Word of God? The things that are biblical, those are what of great value. So he tells them here, stand fast. But notice that's not all he says. Stand fast in one spirit. It's a right place to stand. Just as important in the same phrase, there's a right way to stand there. Paul says, hey, stand fast. Make sure you're faithful. Make sure you contend for the faith. But do it in a spirit that is unifying. Do it in one spirit. That word spirit is not talking about the Holy Spirit. This word spirit is the word attitude. Hey, your attitude has to be right. Your attitude has to be such that it brings unity within the church. By the way, you can say the right thing in the wrong way and do a lot of damage. And you can say the wrong thing in the right way and do a lot of damage. So it's got to have both elements. The right place, the right spirit, 
And now we're standing how God wants us to stand. By the way, God never tells us to compromise, but he really doesn't tell us to go out and blast everybody who does compromise a little bit. There's people I'll mention from time to time. Uh, but the reality of it is that that's not the primary thing that, that we're trying to do. It's not the primary goal. The primary goal is to stand in the right place with the right spirit. And, and, and that there's a gentleness about that. There's a joyfulness about that. And, and we're able to come. And I don't think doctrinal preaching is boring preaching. Amen? Amen. It's exciting. It's, hey, here's what the Bible says. This is the, the doctrines, the core truths of the Word of God. And let's take them and live them and apply them and figure out how do they uh, fit to our daily life so I can live it out every day all the time. And that's what we're supposed to do. And so we see here, stand fast. <clears throat> Contend for the faith. Be faithful. Uh, we don't have to give in, but we've got to do it with the right spirit. Stand fast in one spirit. That deals with our position. And a church needs to be in the right position. But then secondly, not only do we see the position, but we see our person. He says that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind. That word mind is the Greek word suke. It's the word that we get the uh, English word psych, psyche, uh, psychology. That comes from that. It's the idea of your inner being, everything that you are, uh, everything of who you are. And we might say it this way. It's kind of the, the way that a lot of the time you'll hear it uh, nowadays said. Uh, it's your identity. So here's what Paul's saying. You need to be of one uh, spirit in the way that you stand. You need to stand in the right place with the right spirit. Then the next step is uh, your person, you as an individual, must find your, your identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. That it is of one mind. In other words, there's not uh, somebody over here who finds their identity in the chiefs and somebody over here who finds their identity and sense of worth by the size of house they live in and somebody over here who finds their identity and sense of worth in the car they drive and somebody over here who says, well, you know, I've really got the latest cell phone and, and I can take the best pictures and somebody over here who says, you know, I uh, really know more about the Bible than probably anybody else around and that becomes the identity. No, 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 it's not about all these things. No, my identity is in Christ. I'm of value because of my relationship with him, and that's what gives me a reason to live. That, that is what gives me a, a reason to get up in the morning. It's my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when my identity is in him, when that is my sense of self-worth, if we could use some psychological babble there, uh, but my sense of self-worth, self -worth, it's not found in my ability, it's not found in my possessions, it's found in my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So what keeps me going? What keeps me pressing? What keeps me moving? What keeps me being faithful to him? It's not that I'm impressing people. It's that I am serving my Savior. And that's the reason I get out of bed every morning. And that's the reason that I'm the best employee when I go to work on Monday morning. And that's the reason that I give everything that I have to raise a family who loves God. And that's the reason that I serve in my local church. And that's the reason I do everything that I do. It's because it's really all about Jesus and it really has nothing to do with me. And so instead of spending my life trying to gain a bunch of stuff, and by the way, sometimes the Lord blesses with things. Praise the Lord. Nothing wrong with that. Amen. If you drive a nice car, uh, praise the Lord for that. If you have a big house, praise the Lord. There's nothing wrong with those things. Those are great blessings from God. I'm just saying that's not our identity. 
We're not better because we have some of those. We're not worse because we don't. We're all on equal level footing at the cross. Our identity is, I am a child of the king. And I'm simply serving my savior. And if I have stuff, great. If I don't have stuff, great. It's really not about anything else. It's really about I'm just serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 17, says, Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. That word life, it's the same Greek word, suke. It's whoever will lose himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. That it's no longer about me and all the things that I enjoy. It's about Christ himself. My life is all about him. You know why we can strive together for the faith of the gospel? You know how we can have unity with this many people in one church that have to try to get along even though we have a a, a whole bunch of different personalities and ways of looking at life and backgrounds? Do you realize unity in a church is one of the greatest, most amazing miracles that I think there could possibly be in this world? (laughs) Because you put this many people in one room, somebody's going to rub somebody the wrong way. Just the reality, amen? Now, I know most of you are more spiritual than that, and you've never had that happen. But it's just the reality. Somewhere along the line, you have an unspiritual moment, amen? Nobody will say amen. I understand. (laughs) I'm probably the only one. None of you have rubbed me the wrong way yet, so praise the Lord for that. (laughs) But hey, it happens. Sometimes we get frustrated. Sometimes it becomes about, well, but this is how I think, and this is how I feel, and this is what I've always. And all of a sudden we have to say, wait a minute. It really doesn't matter how I've always done, or what I've always thought, or what I've... I'm not talking about doctrine, I'm just talking about preferential. Really it just matters, is Christ pleased? Because that's where my identity, that's where my focus, that's what my whole life's about. And if there's some things that aren't exactly the way I might do them, it's okay if Christ is pleased. Because that's the purpose of life. And all of a sudden, there can be unity, even with this many people and even more as we grow. Why? Because all of a sudden, we're not fighting for what we think and what we feel and what we've done. Now we're just fighting to please the Savior. And now we're moving as one, as a mighty army marching forward for the cause of Christ. By the way, the army who shoots its wounded is an unwise army. The army who helps its wounded up and says, let's keep going forward together. Let's keep serving together. Let's just keep pressing on and attacking the enemy. That's really how the army should work. Amen? And that's exactly how we ought to work. And so we see here that uh, we've got to be wrapped up completely in Christ, that that's all that really matters. That's our identity. That's our focus in life. We see our position. That we stand in the right place with the right spirit. We see our person, we have the right mind, that we have the right identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then number three, we see our practice. He says, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Striving together, that's our practice. That's what we're supposed to do. The word striving together means to struggle alongside of one another. Do you ever struggle in the Christian life? Now, I know nobody says amen there already. I've got this figured out. Sometimes we struggle, do we not? Yep. On the ba- I'm not talking about like the big things of the Christian life. Sometimes we struggle on the little things that we know better. And we've known better for years if you've been saved for years. And maybe decades if you've been saved for a while. And we know what we're supposed to do. And we just don't do it. I mean, we struggle to be faithful. 
We struggle to do the things we're supposed to do. We struggle to keep a right spirit. We all struggle on that. So what are we doing with one mind? It's all about... We're going to try to stand in the right position with the right attitude. And then we're all just going to kind of struggle along together. But we're not going to stop. We're going to keep struggling forward. And sometimes somebody's going to fail. And they're going to fall. And they won't come to church for a little while. And the response sometimes is, well, I wonder where they are. Instead of, oh, man, I'm just praying for them. I'm so glad they came back this week. And, and you know, all of a sudden it just becomes, hey, we've struggled too. It's okay. It's not about, well, where were you the last seven weeks? No, no, hey, I'm just glad you're here. Let's keep going. Let's go forward. And I'm not talking about not helping with some of the problems, but I'm just saying, just keeping on, keeping on. And what happens? Some of us that are here, we struggle just as much sometimes as the ones that aren't here. And sometimes we don't know who's struggling. So we're praying for one another and we're laboring together, continuing in prayer, fellowship, breaking of bread and the word. We're just, uh, we're just keeping on, keeping on. We're keeping on praying. We're keeping on fellowshipping. Why? Because somebody's hurting and somebody's struggling and God didn't save us so that we would go be a lone wolf. He saved us to be a part uh, of a flock of sheep that are struggling along together. And what are we doing? We're laboring and we're struggling and we're battling and we're trying to take the next step. And all along the way, we're telling other people, hey, look, I know that that we don't have everything figured out and we're not perfect, but we have a Savior who is. And yes, we're struggling, but at the same time, we're joyful. At the same time, we're thrilled about what he's doing. And at the same time, we're seeing God working in our church and in our lives and our family. And look at all the good things he's doing in spite of the fact we're still struggling. And now we're just struggling forward together. Why? Because the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. You don't take the gates when you're on offense. That's when you're on defense. So we're attacking. We're attacking the gates. We're, we're putting a, a barrage against the devil's strongholds. And that means we're winning people to Christ. And we're seeing them changed. And we're seeing them discipled. And we're helping them along. And now they join us just struggling forward together. So this is our practice. This is what we do. The, the idea of this word is to compete alongside one another. It's the idea of, uh, of a team sport that has to have everybody on the same page. You know, the Chiefs, and uh, I think it's okay to mention them today still, but the Chiefs a few weeks ago, uh, their defense was a little bit of a concern. Amen? Now you'll say amen. And uh, <laughs> their defense was a little concerning. And I've heard some of the players talking even this past week or so and some of the coaches about what's the difference. They said, well, we got a new coordinator, we got all these new players, and we got all this. And it just took us a while to figure out how to gel. It took us a little while for everybody to figure out their job and quit trying to do everybody else's job and just do their job. But what happens is, and this is any defense, this is really any team sport, but in in football, on defense, you get 11 guys doing their job, you can be a pretty good defense. But if you get 10 guys doing their job and one guy just kind of picking daisies, not a very good defense. One guy breaking down, now the whole defense becomes not that good. And you know what Paul is using in this wording? He's saying, look, every person in the church is just as important as every other person in the church. Hey, you can't look at it and say, well, if I'm not here, if I'm not faithful, I mean, nobody's really going to miss me. And if I don't serve, it's not really that big. No, 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 wait a minute. We're striving together. We're competing together. We're all on the same team. And if we're not doing our part, then somebody else has to try to pick up that part, which means they can't do their part as effectively. And there's a ripple effect through the whole thing. 
So what does it take? It takes everyone saying, hey, I'm going to strive. I'm going to struggle forward together with everybody else in my church. I'm going to do the part God has for me to do. And you know what that means? There is no more uh, uh, advantage. It's no more of a big shot type of a thing to stand up here and preach a message than it is to go over there and clean a toilet or to vacuum a floor. Because each person is needed just as, as much. And God doesn't look at it and say, now there's my big time Christians and there's kind of my little time Christians. No, he looks at it and says, those are my children. And they're serving me because they love me. And I'm so thrilled about it. Isn't it amazing he lets us be a part of that? It's really an incredible thing that God would use us in that way, but he does. So this is our practice. We're striving together because we're of one mind, that it's all about Jesus, and we're standing in the right place. We are agreed. We can't walk together if we're not agreed, but we're in the right place and doing it the right way with the right attitude. And so now we're just moving forward together, and we are laboring together, and we're striving together. And then we see the final part of this. He gives us our purpose. He says, for the faith of the gospel. There's the purpose. This is what it's all about. This is what Jesus wants to be the primary focus and nothing else. That It all really boils down to the gospel. So what goes into that? Well, we've got to have a lifestyle that matches up to it and is becoming the gospel. And then we've got to have a, a, a steadfastness that allows us to be faithful to God so that we are able to preach effectively the gospel. And then we've got to have a church that is uh, working together and striving together and laboring together and that we are uh, making a difference for the cause of Christ and we're standing in the right place so that we can can preach the gospel together so that we can have great unity as a church as we go and preach the gospel. It all really comes down to this. Here's our purpose. Let's get the gospel to a lost and dying world. Let's see people saved. Why? Because then we can help them come in and they can get baptized and they can get discipled and they can start growing and we can teach them how to go tell people about Jesus so they can come in so they can get baptized and discipled and start growing so we can help them. And what happens? We go from addition to multiplication. And before long, the disciples are multiplied. We want to multiply the worship of Jesus Christ. But we, wor- we multiply his worship by multiplying his disciples. So really what it is, it's really all about him being glorified and him being praised and Jesus being lifted on high. And that's why the most important thing of all this is telling people about Jesus It's really not telling people about us or our church or our pastor or the way that we do this. It's really all about, let me tell you about my Savior. So we come here and we get encouraged so we can go out there and tell people, let me tell you how great of a Savior I'm still serving. Man, I was discouraged last week. I went to church and got encouraged this week. And now I have a reason to go tell people how great God still is. And we just keep going. Yes, we struggle but we're struggling together for the faith of the gospel. And you know what happens when we realize we're all struggling? Now it doesn't matter if you know I struggle. I don't have to put on a facade that says I never struggle. That doesn't mean I come into church just making sure everybody knows I'm struggling. But at the same time, I can come in and I can sit down and have a conversation with somebody and say, man, I'm struggling this week. And they can say, yeah, I I was struggling last week. And we're just struggling together. But you know what we're doing while we're doing that? We're telling people about Jesus. We're glorifying Jesus. And the whole focus of the whole thing, it's really all about him. So how do we build a biblical church? We lay aside everything else. We get our life 
totally wrapped up where we are satisfied with nothing else except for our relationship with Christ alone. That becomes the overriding thing of our whole life. And then out of that, we can do the job he's given us to do to carry the gospel to a lost and dying world. And now we're a church that's operating day to day in a biblical manner. So what do we want to do? We just want to keep building that kind of church. And we want to build it this year, and we want to build it next year, and we want to build it the year after. And 20 years from now, and 40 years from now, and 100 years from now, we just want to keep building that kind of church. We want to pass it to the next generation. Here's what a biblical church is. It's not about this. It's not about that. It's not about how we do this. It's not about how the chairs are. It's about one thing. Jesus. His gospel. Let's carry the news of our Savior to a world that's lost and dying and tell people about him so he's glorified because he's really who it's all about. And all of a sudden, we just keep growing, and we just keep going, and we just keep laboring, and we just keep striving. So I ask you this morning, number one, how's your focus? Do you have a singular focus? Or have you gotten sidetracked by some of the stuff that's around us in this world? How's your focus? Number two, how's your faithfulness? Are you being faithful? Are you standing in the right place, and are you standing there with the right spirit? Two sides of that. You've got to have both. Number three, how are you functioning? Are you standing in that right place? Uh, is your identity wrapped in the Savior? Are you a team player? Are you striving together for the faith of the gospel? Are you telling people about Jesus? Are you functioning as the Bible tells us we ought to function? Maybe you're here this morning and you'd say, Pastor, to be honest, I don't know if I can function that way. And I don't know that I could go tell others about Jesus because I don't know if I have my own relationship with him settled. And I don't know if I were to die right now, if, if I would go to heaven. I don't know if I died right now, if I have a personal relationship with Jesus. And this morning, instead of worrying about all the other, the most important thing would be coming to know Jesus as your Savior, personally. But you know what the Bible says about that? Now is the appointed time. Today is the day of salvation. And God has brought you here this morning, if that is you, so you have an opportunity to make that decision this morning. Let me encourage you, if that's you, make the decision this morning to know Christ as your Savior. If you say, I've already done that, what decision do you need to make to keep going forward and building a biblical life, a biblical home, a biblical church? Father, we love you. We thank you so much this morning for your goodness, for your power. Lord, we thank you for the Word of God. It's so real, practical. It's so deep. And Father, we pray that you would help us to continue building a biblical church, a church that is just pressing forward for the faith of the gospel, pressing forward for the cause of Christ, and a church that's just really, uh, truly making a difference, going on the offense of looking to see people come to know Christ as Savior. And Lord, I pray that through everything that happens in this church in the years to come, that it would never waver from it being about your glory and you being the one who is praised. And Lord, would you help that you are greatly glorified in this place, and in the years to come, we love and thank you. Heads are bowed.